Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Editor's Desk here on Biz News Radio. I'm Felicity Duncan and with me, Alec Hug. This week, Alec, you hosted a webinar with a partner of ours, um, Orbvest. And I know you, you, you learned a lot. I know a lot of the community learned a lot. And you just generated a fair bit of discussion. Uh, do you want to explain to us exactly how the relationship between us and Orbvest works and, and really why we do these webinars? I think it's such a good point, uh, Felicity, and it's long overdue to unpack it properly. Just, just to go back a little bit, the media industry is going through major changes, and one is looking at the model differently. The old model of getting in advertising to support editorial content uh, in the way that was possible when media were monopolies is just not working anymore. You've got Google that have come in. They can provide a far superior service to anything else that people in media can do, but in other words, by pack, cutting up and cutting and dicing and slicing the market, and then at a fraction of the cost because they've got scale, they are a, they're just a, a huge player. And as a consequence, Google and Facebook between them have got around 60% of the online advertising market. So from where we sit, we, we, we've had to think about this. And one of the things we've moved into quite aggressively is sponsored content. You've seen that. It's clearly marked. People have got a story that they want to tell. They come to us. They, they pay us to put their story over. And then we put it very clearly to say, this is sponsored. This is brought to you by XYZ. Now, we've taken that onto a new level with only, uh, well, we'll have a maximum of five partners, but three of them that we've kicked off with. The one is Orbvest, the other one is the Rabi Property Group, and the other one is Valdevi. And how this all works is that we do our due diligence on these people, because it's investment related. And we find out primarily, are they con men and crooks? And uh, obviously, in all three cases, we believe not. Are they giving a good value proposition? We believe so. But most importantly, who are the people behind this? Because in investments, that is always your biggest criteria. So if we can satisfy ourselves in those three, it's like any other invest, uh, advertiser. You really are endorsing them. If, there, if there's an advertiser on business, people think we've had a look at them and we've understood them. It isn't always the case and certainly not with the Google ads. But we've we've gone through we, – we, we're happy to have them on our platform and as a consequence, we are endorsing them. So we've just taken that to a different level and we've said, okay, with – organizations and our partners, our business partners, we will then participate in them in showing our community what these guys have to offer. And then if they get value for money out of it, i.e. the advertiser, then we would participate in that as well. So it's a different model. It's a different way of looking at it. And actually, it's probably the, the, the right way for the world in that in virtually every other industry that you talk about, if people pay for a service, they want to see a return on investment. In media, in the past, you paid for a service and you took your chances. If, if nobody answered your ads, well, tough luck. And so what we do then is we try to act like our community and ask the difficult questions. And the webinar that we had on um, Thursday night was exactly that. The, the Orbvest is a, is a company, first of all, of entrepreneurs from South Africa who went to the United States. Well, they, they looked for offshore investments. They found each other from three diverse fields. Really, the chairman is a guy called Henny Pesetmo. He's one of the biggest 
uh, private property owners in the medical field in South Africa. Uh, and he's, he's really uh, focused and good on this. And he saw the opportunity in the American market. He then got together with Martin Freeman, who's the CEO of the company and lives in New York now, uh, the founder of Bayport. Justin Clark, who started private property in South Africa, is there as well. So they've, they've tried to streamline investments for people into U.S. medical properties. So it's very, very, very specialized, and they've made a, a, a focus of that area. So what we do is we show their product to our community and then ask the questions that members of our community would ask as well. And, of course, uh, encourage members of our community to also ask questions, as in the webinar that we had on Thursday. And what they spoke about on Thursday, this is a very ambitious company. They have raised $300 million up to this point or invested into medical properties, geared up with a lot of debt that banks have also put into those properties. And as a result of the gearing, the returns are very significant. They talk of 8% on a income yield, and then on top of that, after five years, each of the uh, little it's, – it's almost like little syndicates that are created. Each of those then sell the properties, and the money from that gets distributed as a capital gain. So everything that we can see looks good. We think that this is a, an organization that uh, is credible. It's got, it's got people of integrity behind it. And as a consequence, we're happy to endorse it. And that's really the approach that we've taken to that. Similarly with Val de V, where we will be doing more work on that in the future. We, we very, um, I've been there. I've kicked the tires. I've had a look at the, at the estate. I've had a look at the, the numbers on the retirement, uh, housing that they, they, or, or project that they're starting there. And I'm happy to endorse it as a consequence of, of the due diligence that we've done. But you must remember in all of these things, even though we're endorsing these organizations as partners, as business partners, the, no one's infallible. So as a consequence, anybody putting money into them, making the investment, has to do their own homework as well. But it is, it's, it's another iteration. It's another development in an industry which in the past – really had monopolies and could could make the rules as it wanted to. This time around, we don't take advertising for, from just about anybody, from, from anyone, and we certainly don't have partnerships with anybody. We keep that very, very refined and after we do our due diligence. And that's part of our responsibility, I think, to our community, because if something were to go off tracks or, or, or rye, we are there representing our community with our business partners. So, all right. I think it's a model that's that's uh, that's going to work for everybody. But of course, only time will tell. And if you're an investor in these uh, opportunities, just remember, nobody is infallible, and uh, least of all um, people like me. So we try our best, and we are certainly um, hopeful that that this will be something that will be to everyone's benefit. Thanks for the uh, clar clarity on that, Alec, because I think you're right. People often don't necessarily understand what's behind what they see. Um, and, you know, speaking of not necessarily understanding what's going on, uh, there, there's a lot been happening this week at, at South African Airways. Uh, you know, right now there's a strike uh, going on that's disrupted a lot of people's travel plans and, and all the rest of it. Um, it's an it's a sad story, really, the story of SAA. You had a lot of corruption at the top. You had some people uh, put into positions of power there who engaged in uh, really destructive behavior that's really eroded the, the fundamentals of that 
uh, I don't want to say business because it's you know not necessarily been run purely along business lines, but uh, that institution. And uh, we're seeing a lot of the costs of that coming to the fore now. It's a, it was a plaything of politicians. If you consider that the perks that are offered to politicians, free air, f- air flights on SAA business class, uh, going back many years, uh, Jacob Zuma gets a friend, uh, al-Bashir, who comes here from Sudan, uh, he spirits him out of the country, and then once he's left, uh, tells SAA, you will be having a weekly flight into Khartoum, etc. It's just been a, a complete plaything of politicians, and the taxpayers have been picking up the tab. Uh, Jacob Zuma's close friend, Dudu Mieni, who was in the position as chairman, uh, we knew about this 10 years ago um, when I remember interviewing Russell Loebscher on the walkout of the board, and I asked him at that time, those who've remained, which I think was Dudu Mieni and maybe one or two others, what are they like? And he said Mieni is the least competent director he has ever worked with. And clearly that was the former CEO of the Stock Exchange and a, and a big executive at uh, Rand Merchant Bank and so on. He's worked with presumably a few not-so-competent executives. And we saw the consequence of that. Mieni tried to uh, make a couple of hundred million rands on the side by – um, facilitating a change in the financing structure, which SAA didn't need, and so on and so forth. Our little um, example of this was while at MoneyWeb, we had a, uh, a, a subsidiary or 50% shareholding uh, in a company that used to sell a book uh, called SA at a Glance to advertisers around the world, and then it, it's real primary objective was to put it onto the business class of South African Airways flights. And unbeknown to us until the principals of this organization went on leave and we could get our teeth into it, um, they were actually paying the procurement office at South African Airways uh, a bribe to get the the books into those flights. And when I approached South African Airways, uh, this was swept under the carpet. So it really is a, a, an organization where the management has been rotten for a long, long time, but more so in, in recent times. And you cannot blame the people further down the, the, the food chain from being very upset at the behavior of the managers who are now making the workers, if you like, suffer. They're talking about retrenching a thousand workers to try and get this company back on track. Whereas much of the blame, in fact, should be going on to those executives who've been mismanaging the organization. And I guess what the workers would be saying is that, hang on, we turn up for work every day. We don't get paid a lot of money. Uh, we aren't the ones who've been doing all the naughty deeds, and yet we're the ones who have to suffer. So all around, there are two sides to this story. You cannot just blithely blame the workers and say, well, shut up and go re- get retrenched or don't ask for 8%. Uh, don't don't uh, um, let your voice be heard in this case. Because although in pure capitalistic terms, that is what some people are arguing, the, the essence of all of this is that it is, it's been going on for a long time. It's been mismanaged for a long time. The board as a starting point, certainly the old board, not the one that's there now, should be taking a lot of the culpability for where SAA is. And taxpayers have had to bail it out. The good news about all of this, I guess, from a taxpayer perspective, is that 
taxpayers are not going to have to bail it out in future. And both the finance minister and the minister of public enterprises have said no more. No more money is going into South African Airways. So unless they can fix it, unless they can do something with it, it will disappear. That's sad in many ways. But one would hope that uh, there is the capacity that will be taken up elsewhere and you'd have a much more efficient uh, transport system. I, I loved, for instance, what Tito Mboweni said it in the press conference at the budget. He said it's ridiculous that South African Airways is being subsidized by the taxpayer, so rich people are able to fly effectively at a subsidized rate, whereas poor people have to get onto trains from townships to go into their place of work, trains that are either uh, uh, late or break down all the time. So there's a misallocation of resources, he says, and the resources need to be allocated in the right place. That is a, a good thing for democracy, a good thing for the country, and the penny is dropping that corruption really does hurt. Uh, you can't just turn a blind eye to it. Yeah, it's, it's good to see that, and it's good to see also just a frank and very public discussion of these problems. You know, I think that the um, SAA workers have been very clear about exactly what you've been talking about, and you know, it's just a, a sea change again, and from where we were a few years back to now, that it's being openly discussed, and we're looking now very hard at the actual costs of what went on, and we're looking at uh, you know who who is ultimately the ones who uh, should be holding the blame. So, uh, you know, as you say, good for democracy, if not uh, terrible for the, the workers at SAA who are suffering through no real fault of their own. When people are poor, there's a misassumption made by the wealthy people that they're stupid. Poor people are not stupid. They've just in the past been starved of information. But in this information age, in the Internet age, that is, they're no longer starved of information. They actually know what's going on because you can find out about it. You can read it on your, on your phone, on your smartphone. And most people do have access to a smartphone nowadays. So this is this, this massive change in that, if you like, information is democratizing society a whole lot. But talking about things that, uh, or, or questions, I really liked your, one of your worldviews this week where you put the counter argument to a very angry uh, Franz Cronier from the Institute for Race Relations who said that the media had effectively been publishing fake news about the Democratic Alliance. Why did you decide to do it? It's, it's not your usual style. Why did you decide to do it that way? Well, I just thought, you know, a lot of what's been coming out of both the DA and the IRR, uh, there's been a tendency to sort of take an attacking position and, and be very defensive and frustrated with how the media is perceiving what's going on at at the party level. And I just thought, you know, the, the DA is oftentimes in a lot of its communication, and I speak, you know, I'm using the term DA kind of broadly here. It's a couple of people in particular. Um, they, they are not really necessarily being as honest as they should be about what the media are actually saying, you know, and, and um, Franz Crenier, whose piece was very impassioned and it was a, an interesting read. He raises a number of fair points, but I think it was in a lot of ways a bit disingenuous and just not really um, kind of creating straw men about what the media was saying um, instead of facing the real facts on the ground. And what struck me as particularly interesting was that as defensive as Crenier was over um, the coverage of the DA, ultimately he himself wrote that the um, IRR has uh, 
lacks faith in the future of the DA and doesn't necessarily think it's a political vehicle that has legs in South Africa and that's going to be able to uh, enact the changes that the IRR would like to see. And to me, that's very telling, right? Because that's what the media is saying. The media is saying, look, given what we've seen happening in, within the DA, particularly at the leadership level, you have to we have to confront the reality that the DA may not be the right vehicle to be the primary opposition in South Africa, that they're making choices that make it less likely that they're going to be be able to really win that majority vote that you need if you want to be a, a ruling party in South Africa. Um, and, and what does that mean for our politics? What does that mean for voters who don't find a home uh, you know, in the whatever the EFF or the ANC or the Freedom Front or what have you, you know, where are they going to be able to go? That's a a big enough tent to welcome in all South Africans. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so I just I really thought, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of attacking the media for their coverage on um, particular things that were written, as opposed to saying looking at the bigger picture and saying, well, really, like, what is the direction that the DA, what's the direction of travel the DA has decided to to head off in? And what does that really mean for the future of the party? You know, and I, and I, like, I don't think, I'm not a critic of that. I think that the DA obviously should do whatever makes the most sense, whatever the membership wants, whatever the politics are that the membership believes in, that's what they should represent. That's exactly the job of a political party but that doesn't mean that what they're representing or their set of policies or beliefs or whatever are going to have the broad appeal that they need to have so you know there's nothing wrong with choosing to be a more minority party but we just have to say that's kind of what you're choosing to be if you make these types of decisions yeah very interesting and very very well put that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to read a summary of this interview, one is available on biznews.com up in the premium section. Uh, you can sign up for premium just £5 a month, and that gives you access to our great original content and to all the content available from our partner, The Wall Street Journal. 